On today's Show Me Institute podcast, Dr. Susan Pendergrass talks to Dr. Williamson Evers. Dr. Evers was the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Education for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development from 2007 to 2009. In 2003, he served in Iraq as a senior advisor for education and was a member of the team that operated the K-12 system. He was a member of the Hoover Institution's Corrit Task Force on K-12 education from its beginning in 1999 until its end in 2014. They discuss his recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about newly proposed model curriculum by California's Education Department. You can hear more of the Show Me Institute podcast on SoundCloud at SoundCloud slash Show Me Institute and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Here's Dr. Susan Pendergrass and Dr. Williamson Evers. Why do six in 10 Americans have a somewhat positive view of socialism, according to Gallup? I think a major reason that there is this, as you might put it, a nostalgic view of socialism is the existing socialist countries of the 20th century have mostly gone away. There's really North Korea and Cuba and Vietnam, you know, and and even Vietnam is pretty capitalistic. So it's really Cuba and, and North Korea. And so the horror of one of the one of the components of socialism is the force behind it. This the secret police, the uh, forced labor camps, and so forth, which you do see in North Korea, and you do and so forth. But the, the point is, if you look at socialism, and you define it sort of strictly as government ownership of productive assets of means of production of factories of farms and so forth then together with that come a lot of problems and so so these problems are neglected and not out of sight when the big existing actually existing socialism goes away so here are the main problems one is the so-called calculation question so what do you mean well here's what i mean Imagine the whole world were socialist. Got it. Well, there were no markets, there were no private property. Okay. Okay, so it's all planning boards and whatever. Now, you have to decide, you're a central planner, you have to decide whether to build a dam or not, or where to put the dam, or whether to put a machine on this factory floor, on that factory floor, or maybe not on any factory floor. Without a market without the, the, the calculation that you can make based on prices which reflect scarcity, which reflect anticipations of where this might be the most valued use, this might be the most productive use, and so forth, you cannot decide this. So, so you don't have... You're uh, flying blind. You don't have Apple. You don't have the internet. You don't have Disney. You don't have Coca-Cola. Like, those things well, wouldn't happen in that situation because there's no they wouldn't, they incentive wouldn't to innovate. Right. But it's also that they just are flying blind. They can't know what is a productive use of a resource. Okay, then there's a second problem with socialism that you might call the only employer is the state problem. So, so, So now, if you are working as a farmhand, you can go to different farmers. If you're working as a factory hand, you can go to different factories. If you're an intellectual, you can go to different think tanks. So there's no, there's no thing like that. 
under socialism because the only employer is the state. But let me and ask you, let me interrupt you. Do you think when people talk about socialism today that they're thinking of that, that the state owns everything and the state plans everything? Because quite honestly, I think people are using that word when they mean like a bigger safety net, when they mean the Nordic countries. Like they're thinking, why can't we take care of poor people better? Well, I have no doubt that that's one of the possibilities. But all I'm, all I'm trying to first make clear is Without the example of things like Soviet Union, communist China when it was mm -hmm. thoroughly communist, Vietnam when it was thoroughly communist, all those Eastern European countries when they were thoroughly communist, and people were dying to kind of get out to get out of them. The Literally, people yeah. Dying to get out of yeah. Yeah, that's true. Without that, the uh, without that example, the gen dream if you will, of yeah. socialism looks more attractive. And so if you're that, under maybe the age of 35, you've never seen that directly. You don't know. Exactly. And exactly. I don't want to lay this at the hands of young people because the reason that I want to talk to you today, one of the reasons is because you had a piece in the Wall Street Journal recently and you've always been, I shouldn't say always, you have often been very involved in California public school curriculum, I would say. You started the math wars back in the day when your kids were in elementary school. True? True. Okay. And you were involved in the eighth grade algebra for all, right? Or you were in the math curriculum yep. committee for the state. So you've been I, I, directly involved. And just yep. to, to give you a tip of the hat, you also went to the green zone in Iraq and worked on their education uh, uh, system. Yes. I okay. ran the school system in Iraq in 2003. So you're not just somebody with an opinion. You have an, an right? So you, and then you, of course, you're assistant secretary of the Department of Education. So you had an article or an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal recently where you said there is new curriculum in California that may or may not become mandatory. There's a chance it will. Yes. And this curriculum defines capitalism as a means of power and repression? And exploitation. That's and right. So how did that come to be? Like, how is it that California is putting together a curriculum where all of a sudden capitalism is the bad guy? Because this is going to be taught to high school students, right? Mostly, Yes. So how'd that come it to could, be? It could, it could go into lower grades. Well, I think uh, this field of ethnic studies has uh, been affected uh, by identity politics and by ideological views that draw on Marxism. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the definition that's in there is that the workers are exploited because their surplus value is taken by the capitalists. Okay? This is 19th century, so 1800s, Marxist theory that all value is produced by labor and, uh, and so forth. And this is, was disregarded at the end of the 19th century, the end of the 1800s, by the marginal revolution. And under the marginal revolution, a worker is paid not according to reproducing future labor, which the Marxist thing, but according to the workers' marginal value productivity. So it's a marginal analysis. It doesn't create, treat labor and capital and land as just lumps. It looks at the marginal pieces and what each laborer is adding. And, and it's just wrong. Okay, okay? so why in 2019 is that coming back? I was just talking to my colleague about the End of History and the Last Man by Frank Fukuyama. You know this book? Right. He said that we would evolve 
only towards liberal democracy and the idea right. of socialism and communism would never return. Why is capitalism was, getting a bad name? He was writing at the time that the communist states broke down mm -hmm. in the late 1880s, 1980s. 1980s, 89, yeah. We, we had a big shock with the recession of 2008. Mm -hmm. And this left an opening for various socialist critics. And they claim, wrongly, that somehow untrammeled, unfettered capitalism did this when really it was central banks and their inflationary practices, the Basel rules about how you could label different uh, units of investment, the community rating rules for banks and lending to, so to now, homeowners. Now they're saying... Up. You've this got, was all government intervention, not yeah, out of pure market. But now it's like you've got student loan debt, and and you can't buy a house, and it's hard to be. Student you know, loan debt is a product of government programs. I yeah, mean, <laughs> but it's like I think it's, it's being built as like you can't get ahead because the capitalists are keeping you down, and that's a very being, intoxicating statement. Well, there's always been a component of the intelligentsia, the opponent of brain workers, thinker people that don't work with their hands, that, that dream that they will run the society, that they will somehow be the technocrats, they will be the people that... So it's okay if we put this in place because we'll be running it. Yes, they oh. think that, but they forget that in reality, because people are not like pieces on a game board, they have their own projects that they want to accomplish. You need a secret police. You need a forced labor camps yeah. because people will not go along with what government planners say. And the dream of the democratic socialists is that we'll have endless meetings to decide all these questions, <laughs> like where to put that dam or whatever. But the truth is, A, people don't want to go to endless meetings. All right, you know, I like do a, not. A few people are different and they want to go. But most people don't want to go to endless meetings and they still have the calculation problem, even if they go to endless meetings. So what do you think the chances are that any socialist type policies will actually take hold in the near future in the U.S.? I mean, Green New Deal kind of comes to mind, but like, what do you think? Are we really, we really at risk because, um, well, are we really at risk? Yes, because there are uh, the, because the these socialist leaning politicians have a coherent or more or less coherent, I don't want to be too nice to them, view, and they're pushing it hard. Mm -hmm. So this is like a way too exaggerated example. But during the French Revolution, the Jacobins knew what they were doing. They wanted to kill all the royalty, kill all the nobility, destroy the church, create a religion of reason, change the calendar, all the stuff. They knew what they were doing. The moderates didn't have an alternative. And mm -hmm. so everybody got dragged in the Jacobin direction. And uh, interesting enough, the leading uh, current magazine of this socialist tendency on the left is called the Jacobin. But never heard of it. But I will say that, like, we're out here in Missouri. So what happens in California, we can write off as like, you know, that's California. They're crazy. Um, but if every it guides, the t it guides the textbooks. So if every ninth grader in California learns, like, here's the definition of capitalism. It's right. exploitative. It's a it's a system of power to repress people. Right. It does, that component there does concern me because I think 
you know, a lot of kids, a lot of kids, a lot of people, students go to college campuses. You get kind of caught up. I went to a very liberal school. You get caught up in that and some ideas that ultimately you get out. You've got a 401k and a family and a mortgage and they don't hold up well later on in life. But I right. sort of see it in the in the um, college campus uh, uh, arena. But, but like in, in high school, I think that's problematic. Well, I think you're a more mature person in in college, uh, and you know you should be tackling more difficult questions then, and not being yeah. forced at them in high school. How does... I do think there's, a, there's okay. another thing that's going on, and that can extend this into adults, and that is envy. So envy is, you know, resenting people that are in a better situation than you are mm-hmm. and, and so kind of wanting to tear them down. OK, so they're achieving more. They're they have more. They have more prestige than you. You want to tear them down. And you think it's unfair that they have more different stuff than you have. Well, the way socialists and near socialists succeed in politics is they mobilize this envy. We we can never get rid of envy, people. It's just part of human nature. Sure. But we can have restraint about envy. We can recognize it. We can say, I don't want to, it's a sub, one of the seven deadly sins. I don't want to covet my neighbor's <laughs> uh, car. <laughs> car exactly <laughs> I, I i need to realize that i'm making my life and that's interesting and worthwhile and i'm not tearing down everybody else so but they mobilize that and they can do that in high school and they can do that in college and they can do that right until they, everybody is you know in the grave because it it, it we are susceptible to that mm-hmm. and if we take away the restraints in society and our morals and our politics on that, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 there's an appetite that starts feeding on itself. And then people seemingly but, forget that so, it oh, is. I'm, I'm promising that. No, I'm promising you even more. <laughs> yeah, right. And then people forget that the only pretty much, I think, Milton Friedman would say that the one way that societies do get lifted up and everybody does do better is capitalism. He said that and he was right. He, he was said it on the... Phil Donahue, right? He said it, and it, he said it many times, and it's sort of the empirical defense, the factual defense of capitalism. So this goes back to we're creating a new storyline around socialism. We're cre- yeah, and we around, can because we don't have memory, yeah, and we're right. creating a new storyline around capitalism, capitalism, which seems exactly. to resonate with people, and, and it, that's and creeping into textbooks. And it resonates with this new identity politics ideology that's all over America. Well, what do we do to uh, change people's minds? Well, I think we have to argue the facts and we have to argue mental experiments the way I just did. And we have to be persistent and call people out on this. And mm-hmm. we have to watch the tech the way I tried to show that the California textbooks were wrong or the, the proposed curriculum was wrong. Mm-hmm. And the state has at least for a while anyway withdrawn it they may do something different or worse i don't know mm-hmm. so there are there are ways the, the thing is economic science is on the side mainstream economics is on the side it doesn't accept this exploitation theory of labor it doesn't can't explain what really happens and so there's hope you do know do you, you think what, what do you think about the quality of economic uh um curriculum in our 
K-12 schools? Do you think students are being taught economics? Do you think they're being taught economics correctly? And why, and more importantly, why is economics in the ethnic study literature, why are those intertwined? They seem like separate disciplines to me. They are, in fact, separate disciplines, but there's, you know, always overlap. And you need a bad guy. theology class, you might have economics come up. In a political science class, you might have economics come up. It's not... Yes, they are separate disciplines, but they there is uh, some overlap. So there's that's that. But what do you think about this capitalism is, versus capitalist arg- argument? Capitalism's not bad. Capitalists are bad. I don't understand that. You can't have capitalism without true capitalism without capitalists. So, <laughs> what is capitalism? Capitalism is a system in which productive assets are privately owned. Entrepreneur owners take risks with the, these assets, and they they try and put forth services and products, and they put them before consumers, and the profit and loss system registers whether they made wise uh, projects with mm-hmm. with these assets, and it gives a feedback to that, and that's how it works. You can't. If you don't have capitalist owners, you can't have a capitalist system. I mean, I'll give you one example of something that tried to do something. In Yugoslavia, after World War II, before the fall of communism in the late 1980s, there was a ruler named Marshall Tito, and when they broke with Stalin, they had worker cooperatives for their factories. And they, but they tried to be a market syndicalism. They tried to have market relations, however imperfect, between them. And, and they actually, because they did this, they were actually somewhat more, prosper, more prosperous than the regular state communist countries, okay? So mm-hmm. messed up as it was, it kind of worked. But one, they didn't have any real way to do objective banking, investment banking. They couldn't, again, make good decisions, where to put the dam, where to put the new machine. Right. Uh, and secondly, they had a single party state. It was a communist country. They had a communist party state and they had a secret police backing it. So the only way they could hold it together and stop it from turning into regular full scale capitalism was by suppressing it. Even in spite of that, they had a next generation problem. In other words, you're in this cooperative and your cooperative is successful. Okay, so new people want to get in and take advantage of this, okay, mm-hmm. because it's a prosperous company that's run by these workers. So new workers want to get in. And then, so you have a new worker who's maybe skilled, but you have another potential new worker who's the kid of somebody who's already in there. Aha, we got a big problem, right? So that broke down. In general, these efforts at sort of voluntary communism don't work very well. I'll mm-hmm. give you another example, the kibbutzim in Israel. Sure. So these are kind of voluntary, small-scale socialism. The first generation is enthusiastic. They're willing to go to a lot of meetings. Uh, and they Always with uh, the meetings. Okay. I didn't know meetings was a component. But, but it is if you're going to have the democracy <laughs> side of it. I mean, you can have a more... Stalin rules everybody thing, but if you're going to yep. go the democratic route, you're going to have lots of meetings. But so the the next generation doesn't want to live communally; they want to do something differently, and so it breaks down. So I talk a lot of, in Missouri. We have essentially no 
uh, school choice. We have St. Louis and Kansas City um, charter schools were introduced as an intervention for low performance only. So for the most part, if you're a parent in Missouri, it's your assigned public school or nothing. And that has not... Kind of like socialism. Kind kind of like like socialism. socialism. And that has not led to wildly successful outcomes. Exactly. And it's... But the fascinating thing is Sweden... That's supposedly this socialist ideal for these people, which even if it's not, it's not. It's a capitalist system with heavy taxation is what it is. But they have school choice. Mm-hmm. They have school choice. Not only that, Sweden had, you know, had tremendous success, economic success in the 1900s and in the early 20th century. And then it began to get more and more heavily taxed, income taxed and more and more government programs. And in the 1990s, they realized this is not working. So they went back toward capitalist system. They reduced taxes, they reduced regulations, they reduced the size of government, and they reformed their welfare program, their poor relief program. So, And they have essentially free tuition, but they also have student debt. Yeah. So the free tuition did not eliminate student debt in Sweden because students borrow to live. Um, so I just I just don't think we should seek utopia. We can we can seek a free society. We can seek fulfillment within a free society that you know encourages honesty and encourages lawful behavior and so forth. But just to think, oh, magically we can have all this stuff for free, and it's not really coming at the expense of other people. It's not true. It's that's not right. Not, that's not true. I know that some people with student debt are thinking maybe it's just going to go away. I'm like, well, it's going to go somewhere. It's not going to go away, away. Someone's going to have to pick up the tab for that. Um, so if you think if you think of these Sweden type systems with high taxation, as as I, as I said, you can't think of it as magical and nobody's working for it. In fact, the people who are paying these high income taxes are paying it. It's it's not a crazy thing to be an to be worried about this. I mean, we had in it's, it's Ancien Regime France, France before the uh, so the America, before the French Revolution of, of 1789, before the French Revolution, the peasants were forced to stay on the land, so they were kind of like serfs. They had a little more mobility than the serfs in Russia, but they were pretty much tied to their land, plus they had corvée, which meant that they had to do compulsory labor on roads and other infrastructure, building bridges, various things. Uh, And so it was a kind of feudalistic socialism, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so there are lots of mixed systems here. And Sweden is kind of a mixed system because it has, it's capitalist mainly, but it has some socialistic components. And I just don't think people, they, 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 they take a hopeful, benign view, but actually government leaders, you shouldn't count on government leaders to, do to always be benign, to always be uh, benevolent, you know? Yeah. So what would you do <laughs> that's a, that's if, what the if you founding... think it's important, if you think it's important, what would you do to reduce income inequality in this country? Well, I think the main things are uh, job licenses occupational licenses that and and other things that discourage mobility so you can you can get locked into 
pension plans and various things that can't be transferred. And you, you, you need to be able to move to where jobs are or job recruiters. Mobility is down now, that. right? Yes, yes. Mobility is absolutely down. That is a fact. And that you think it's a... down because we're making job searches more restrictive in terms of occupational licensing, um, uh, yeah. reciprocity on teachers' licenses and all of that type of thing, uh, pensions. I'm in favor of I'm in favor of the yeah. reciprocity, obviously. So if we would get rid of some of the stickiness in the system, you think that yes. that could help with income inequality? I mean, I do. Okay. I'm not. I'm not. Look, I'm not for some perfect equality. For what I am in favor of is a system where people have honestly acquired property. They can make transactions freely. It's a voluntary society. It's a society of free choice. And this is what is called. Uh, classical liberalism or libertarianism, and and it's the the view of uh, many famous people: John Stuart Mill, Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, who you mentioned, and lots of other people. Yeah. The, the the point is, existing capitalist societies do not live up to the classical liberal ideal. They still have tremendous amounts of government intervention. Plus but cronyism more, and other yeah, negatives, right. capitalism. But cronyism is a political thing where you get special privileges, you get special favors because of your political connections. And so you're getting treated differently. The, the, the more we can get rid of cronyism, the more we can get rid of regulations that can be captured by one special side or another. So the, the redistributive state that is sort of the ideal of these pro-Sweden people, I don't think you should call it the redistributive state. You should call it the subsidy state. You should call it the favoritism state, because that's what it is. You're picking How some so? political favorite, whoever the pet people of this time that you're talking about is, and you're giving them special subsidies, special privileges. Actually, our goal should be to get rid of those and have everybody equal under the law. That's the kind of equality we should be looking for. Yeah. What's your we do have what's we your... do have the example of Venezuela in front of us. Yeah, it and, seems and kind of far away. I mean, it's not on the. Okay, I don't watch news, it's so I read about it sometimes, but I also read a lot of other stuff about things that are is more prevalent in my news feed. So I don't think that people are feeling threatened that we're going to turn into Venezuela. First of all, it's democratic capitalism. This group of people that are in control came to power democratically. And yes, they turned increasingly autocratic, increasingly dictatorial, but that's what happens with socialism. And so the whole oil industry that used to be the finest in Latin America disappeared. It's not really working anymore. They're suffering from massive malnutrition. Millions of people are fleeing the country. It's swamping Colombia. Uh, it, it is just as people fled in Berlin and they had to put up the Berlin Wall, people are fleeing Venezuela. Uh, and, you know, they're all over Florida. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not something, yes, American news may not have covered it as much as I might like, but it's there. It is. You're right. And it, okay, one, one last question. What, in terms of words and definitions... What do you think happened to the notion of charter schools, especially like California? It's also on the ropes. And now it's like a litmus test to say that you're against charter schools. And they're being 
held up as scapegoats of resegregation and scapegoats of, uh, you know, uh, ruining public school districts and neighborhood schools. What's your take on that? Well, I think that these themes that you just stated have been there from the earliest days of charter schools. But the labor unions, who are the main voicers of these, together with school district officials, yes. uh, have just continued and continued day in and day out with this. And although there is a charter school constituency, it's not as w well organized, it's not as full time, it's not as well funded, and it's not as do or die somehow, you know? The, the unions uh, ha have to sell the story that this is subtracting from the common good. To stay uh, alive. To stay alive. Yeah. And, and so, and not every charter school is good. I mean, we have actually a problem that charter schools have become established interests and charter schools that should go away yeah, are there. I agree. But so, then the, the finance piece, too, especially in California, the legacy cost of pensions. I mean, CalSTRS and CalPERS, they're they're on a they're on a glide path to disaster. Right. Regular <laughs> the regular government employee pension plan and the teacher pension plan from the 80s. Terrible hang. Mm -hmm. They're a terrible overhang and no politician wants to face it. And uh, that is certainly a deep background of this. But 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 I think the main thing is that the teachers unions have persistently in every state yeah. talked them down. And uh, they've been successful here for sure. Like I said, we, we essentially don't have them. We have them as a as an education intervention. And if you bring it up, it's, it's like we don't we wouldn't want those here. The, they have a very good, solid message. We can't even we can't even really make any headway on expanding them statewide. And therefore, my opinion, or what I talk about a lot is, we're quashing any entrepreneurial person right. who wants to you know, innovate in public education. Any entrepreneur in the middle of the state that wants, that's got a great idea for a school, uh, they could go to St. Louis. So are you gonna solve this? Personally, no, yes. but it has been my life project. Well. You could keep Milton Friedman worked until well into his 90s on some of these topics, right. and I think was making some ground, but I do see some of it slipping away. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.